Prevalence of acne among teens and young adults is about 85%, and it can often persist into adulthood. The last Canadian acne guideline was published in 2000, and since then, evidence for many additional treatments has emerged. I'm Dr. Diane Kelsall, Deputy Editor for CMAJ, and today we're speaking with Dr. Shannon Humphrey, Medical and Cosmetic Dermatologist in Vancouver and Director of CME and Clinical Assistant Professor in the Department of Dermatology and Skin Science at the University of British Columbia. Dr. Humphrey and a team of experts have published evidence-based guidelines in the CMAJ for the management of acne that have been adapted to the Canadian healthcare system. Hi, Shannon. Thanks so much for joining me today to talk about these guidelines. Hi, Diane. It's my pleasure. So why should we worry about acne? Isn't this just a phase that teens go through? You know, that's a really common belief, but I think we have now a mounting body of evidence to tell us it's actually much more than that. And uh, although it sounds hokey, it really is more than skin deep. We know that acne vulgaris can have really significant impacts on quality of life, on mental health conditions like anxiety and depression, let alone the physical health of the skin. So particularly as dermatologists, we really are giving it a lot of attention and a lot of credence these days to get patients treatment as early as possible. Now, what types of acne do you cover in this guideline? And can you give um, listeners a brief description of what you mean by each of these categories? Absolutely. So if you look at figure two, if, if anyone wants to follow along through the podcast, figure two would be the figure to follow along. You can see that the guideline refers to acne vulgaris. And, and what does that mean? That simply means common acne. It actually includes acne from pediatric patients all the way through to adult acne. What it doesn't include is acne variants. So it doesn't include things like folliculitis or rosacea, but it's really this acne vulgaris group. And within that group, there are three general types of acne. So that would be pediatric acne, the typical teenager adolescent acne that most of us think about when we just use the word acne, and then adult acne. And you ask me to describe those three types types separately. So a brief description, starting with the most common being adolescent acne, that's the typical teenage acne. So patients with pimples starts around the time of the initial hormonal surge of puberty and is seen in, in 80 to 90% of teenagers and lasts a variable duration through their teenage years. Pediatric acne is on the rise. This is typically seen in the pre-adolescent age group, so 7 to 12-year-olds tends to be milder than teenage acne and tends to be more just the clogged pore type or comedonal acne. And then the last type is adult acne. It's seen much more commonly in women than in men, and it tends to have a cyclical pattern. So these are the um, deep tender nodules that some adult women experience around the time of their menses. Do you think that the increase in use of sunscreens could be contributing, for example, to the increase in uh, pediatric acne? You know, it's an interesting question, and there has been a lot of debate about why are we seeing acne in pre-adolescent children now where we never did before. And just in the last um, couple of years, there was a joint guidelines out by the American Academy of Pediatrics and the American Academy of Dermatology that makes reference to this trend. And the pediatricians feel that it's more related to the um, earlier onset of puberty. We're seeing earlier surges in androgens, and that's really what correlates with the onset of acne more likely as an explanation than um, the increasing use of sunscreen. But a bigger question that I think we don't have the answer to is why is the onset of puberty 
creeping towards a younger age. And that uh, uh, answer I won't be able to give you today. I think that's very wise. Now, so from what you're saying, it sounds like the recommendations in this guideline aren't just for adolescents. They're obviously geared to a, a wider age group. It's true. You know, you asked me to describe the different types of acne vulgaris, acne that are covered in these guidelines, and they are clinically quite distinct. But these guidelines are actually broadly applicable to all three of those subtypes, the pre-adolescent, adolescent, and adult type acne. So even though they look a little bit different at the bedside, we actually can apply these guidelines to all of those age groups. Now, this isn't discussed in the guideline, but is there anything patients can do to prevent acne? I still hear teens go, well, it's chocolate or maybe it's milk. Uh, There's a whole bunch of different things that people think contribute. Do these contribute and should people be staying off of certain dietary um, products? It's a great question. It's one of the most common ones that have been posed. And while it's not in the primary guidelines for physicians who are interested, Appendix 3 does offer a lot more discussion around some of these controversial issues, why they haven't been included. And it basically refers back to the level of evidence. There's not a high enough quality of evidence for us to mention it in the guidelines. But what I can say is that there is um, significant circumstantial evidence that Diets that are high in glycemic index can make acne worse. Back to your question, they don't cause acne, so you can't prevent it. But it is possible that patients who eat a lot of sugary foods, a lot of carbohydrates that are spiking their blood sugar, may have acne that is more difficult to control than patients who eat a low glycemic index diet. So a low glycemic index diet would have a lot of vegetables, lean protein, and very little refined sugar, or carbohydrate. I was really surprised. There's a a popular acne medication that's available in kiosks in malls. And Mm -hmm. (laughs) their handout to patients indicates that they should go off of dairy products. Dairy is interesting. And so I bring up glycemic index because that's where most of the evidence is. But there is also some evidence around dairy. And we think it probably links back to glycemic index as well. Because the risk factors that have been identified in big groups of patients for dairy are actually low-fat or fat-free dairy. And those are foods that have a higher glycemic index that can spike the blood sugar. And, And we believe on a molecular level what's happening there is high blood sugar, hyperinsulin state increases insulin like growth factor one, and the expression of IGF-1 actually increases sebum production and increases the stickiness of skin cells. And those are the two things that predispose patients to acne. So there's a good scientific model to explain how diet, specifically high GI foods or um, fat-free dairy may make acne worse, but it's certainly not the be-all and end-all. That's interesting then. So when you have all these mm-hmm. teenage girls in particular on all their fat-free yogurts, they may be better off with a higher fat yogurt if they were going to go in that direction then. Yep, a higher fat yogurt um, or just looking at a diet that has a lower glycemic index. So lean protein, lots of fruits and vegetables if you're going to have grains like really whole grains, not processed at all. And in fact, there are some populations in the world where they have um, incredibly low glycemic index diets, different hunters and gatherers, and they have virtually no teenage acne. So that's where some of the circumstantial evidence came from. Interesting. 
Now, say a teen develops a few comedones in their T-zone. What should they do? Should they start with over-the-counter products? Do they need to see a doctor? It's a great question. And I think in a perfect world, we'd have lots of specialists and everyone would have direct access to uh, A, to a family doctor and B, to their dermatologist. But we know that's not necessarily possible. And so it's very reasonable for a patient with mild acne, particularly mild comedonal acne, to get started with an over-the-counter preparation. And the most widely available and evidence-based option there would be a benzoyl peroxide topical. So a lotion or a gel, 5% concentration or less, could be applied once a day for two or three months as a trial. Now, at what point should a patient seek medical attention then? So I think that if the two to three month trial isn't working, if they haven't tolerated the benzoyl peroxide, because there are a percentage of patients who find it too irritating, or if the acne has progressed beyond the mild acne. So if they're starting to see more papules and pustules, so these are the more red-looking lesions, if there's any suggestion that there might be scarring, or if there's any complicating past medical history. So if the patient has any complicating medical factors, or if there's a really significant impact on mental health or quality of life, I think, you know, just seek medical attention. The family doctor can certainly do um, a great job with a preliminary assessment, and they can triage and decide if a specialist is required. Okay, so the person is now in the office. They have some comedones, but they're also getting some inflammatory lesions. They've tried over-the-counter benzoyl peroxide, but now they're in my office. What should be my next step? So in terms of evidence, there's great evidence that you have a number of choices. So the choices for this patient who's coming to you for a first prescription could go with monotherapy, benzoyl peroxide or a topical retinoid, or you could choose a fixed-dose combination topical. So this is, you know, the lingo we use for a number of ingredients that are prepared in one bottle. And why would we do that? We do it because it allows you to get multiple mechanisms of action, but still take advantage of the fact that it's a single therapeutic intervention, which is going to improve adherence with the treatment. And so those options are a benzoyl peroxide adapalene combination, so benzoyl peroxide with a retinoid, or a benzoyl peroxide with a clindamycin together. And that's really where most dermatologists would start, the fixed-dose combination topical. Now, there are many different vehicles for acne medications. I mean, that's sort of what makes it complex for for both patients and uh, for primary care physicians. I mean, there's gels, creams, lotions. How should we pick? It's not straightforward, and this is really where the art of your prescription comes in. Um, you know, we can look at the evidence, and when you refer to figure two, this is where the best, most rigorous evidence is. But it's looking at a patient sitting in front of you, trying to profile what kind of skin type do they have. Do they have sensitive skin? Is it dry? Is it really oily with big sebaceous glands? That's how you're going to decide. And, and as a general rule, someone who has sensitive skin, not very oily, you may lean towards something more gentle. So this would be a cream. For a patient who has big oil glands, large pores, oily skin, you can absolutely use a gel. You can use higher concentrations of a retinoid or benzoyl peroxide. And then one message that should be applied to all patients and it's not evidence-based, it's more anecdotal based on dermatology experience, you need to recommend adjunctive skin care. So patients need to be instructed how to care for their skin because if left to their own devices, most patients will try and scrub their acne away. They'll try and 
use um, drying alcohol pads to dry up their acne, but we know that those things can actually make the appearance of acne worse. The skin will look red, it will be irritated, the barrier of the skin will be disrupted. So it's not only taking the right treatment in the right vehicle, but it's making sure that patients are being gentle to their skin. Gentle cleanser and, and a lotion morning and night can really help with tolerating the acne treatment. So are there any tips because I understand that there's, there are differences in timing. Some things you would apply at specific times. Some things don't work together. Tips that I have about applying topicals, I think you want to keep it simple like anything. And again, that's going back to the point of choose a fixed dose combination topical if you can, because it's only one topical. And I think nighttime tends to be better for most patients. So um, combine the application of your acne treatment with your nighttime personal hygiene routine. So wash your face, use your moisturizer, use your acne gel, brush your teeth, have a sip of water and head to bed. You know, clumping those together really improves adherence and having only a single therapeutic option really improves adherence. Um, that's what's going to keep patients actually using the treatment. Sometimes papular posture acne becomes more extensive in terms of the inf- level of inflammation, but also distribution onto the back. What should we do differently if this is the situation? So, of course, once you have more extensive acne, it's going to be less practical to use just a topical. And this is where we get on to um, still mild to moderate papular pustular acne that's no longer localized. And typically, we're going to look at adding a systemic agent to the topical. So they are going to still use their topical, ideally a fixed dose combination topical cream or gel. And then to that, we're going to add either a systemic antibiotic or a combined oral contraceptive if it's a female patient. And what kind of response rates do we get with that? It's difficult to give an absolute number because there are so many um, contributing factors. But we're absolutely going to see a significant increase in improvement when we add the systemic to the topical. You know, you mentioned the use of oral contraceptives for women. Is that preferred over using a systemic antibiotic? Which should we be looking at doing first? So it really depends. This is where the art comes into it. And I think after you've taken a thorough history, asked patients about their experiences with therapy, their past medical history, and determined which of these treatments is most appropriate for the patient, it will allow you to determine which one is more suitable. There are some considerations. An antibiotic cannot be used for long periods of time. The best recommendations are a 12-week trial um, would be how long you could treat a patient with a systemic antibiotic for acne. And this really speaks to concerns about antibiotic resistance. There's been a real increase in awareness in the dermatology community about our potential contribution to antibiotic resistance in our treatments of acne and rosacea. So that's the limitation there. You can't use it forever, and it doesn't give remission. So patients would add it for 12 weeks. They'd see really nice improvement that may last for several months longer, but eventually they're going to be back in your office needing a longer-term solution. So for female patients, if they're suitable candidates for the oral contraceptive pill, it has the, the advantage that it could be used for longer periods of time. So you have a patient, you put them on, an, on a systemic antibiotic, 
you would recommend really no more than about, you said 12 weeks, and then you'd need to take them off. In women, you've suggested if they're appropriate candidates, they could use an oral contraceptive. But for, let's say, a guy, um, if they come back then, you know, they've had sort of it works really well for three months. They're okay for another couple of months. They come back. It's it's gotten bad again. Can you give them another twelve week period? Is is that kind of how it works? So when they come back, they've had their twelve weeks. They've done well. They've had a period of time on just their topical. So that's what we call maintenance. They're using their combined uh, fixed dose combination topical, say three four months. But the acne starts to come back. It's a discussion with them about where to go from here. So. Um, did they tolerate the antibiotic well? You could certainly consider another um, short course of antibiotic, but it may also be a time to discuss other options. Um, is this patient a candidate for systemic isotretinoin, uh, Accutane, which offers the possibility of a longer-term improvement, or are they not? Are they not willing? And so in that case, going back on another course of antibiotics is a possibility. And I should have mentioned for patients requiring multiple courses of antibiotics, systemic antibiotics, the one thing we can do to help reduce the risk of antibiotic resistance is make sure their topical has benzoyl peroxide in it. Because benzoyl peroxide uses a different mechanism to kill bacteria, it's independent from antibiotic resistance. It doesn't contribute to this problem. And in fact, it actually reduces the emergence of resistant strains. So we know if you need an antibiotic for the patient, be as responsible as you can and use it concurrently with a benzoyl peroxide. So if the patient comes back, they've had recurrences, uh, recurrence of their acne, you're now at the point where you're going to talk about Accutane. What are the issues with that particular drug? So isocretinoin is certainly one of the most hotly discussed therapeutics in dermatology, and it has a lot of consideration. So on one hand, the positive aspects are that it is the single most effective treatment for acne, bar none. If a patient can take this drug for the full duration, which is about six months, um, virtually all patients will be clear. And of those patients, many of them, half to three quarters, will actually stay in remission indefinitely. So there's no other treatment that we can discuss that has um, efficacy rates like that. But on the flip side, it's a systemic drug with a really well-defined side effect profile, not the least of which is potent teratogenicity. So, you know, this is not something we minimize, and this is really where the consideration comes around who can and who should prescribe it. Um, even one dose in early pregnancy can have catastrophic outcomes. The flip side is four weeks later, the drug is no longer present in sufficient quantities to have any impact on a pregnancy outcome. So teratogenicity is the most significant consideration in terms of side effects, and there are a number of others. It requires blood test monitoring, both uh, for pregnancy tests, for um, cholesterol, triglycerides, and liver function tests, and it requires a specialized skill set to be able to prescribe it. That does not mean it needs to be a dermatologist, and there are many pediatricians and family doctors out there who have taken the time to be familiar with the prescribing patterns, the monitoring, the side effect profile, and doing a great job. So what I would say to physicians listening, if you like treating acne, if you see a lot of it, take the time, make it a, a personal development project to review the side effects, review the current guidelines on prescribing isotretinoin, and become proficient. If you're really not willing to, and the patient has failed systemic therapy or has scarring, 
needs to be a prompt referral to a dermatologist. And therein lies the challenge because there aren't too many of us. If a patient is uncomfortable with the use of Accutane, what other treatments are available for severe acne? Before I specifically answer your question, I think if the patient is uncomfortable, you just need to make sure they have the information because there is a lot of misinformation out there. If you do a Google search of Accutane, there is scathingly um, emotional and unscientific information that patients can access in one of the first two or three links. So it's important that they have the right information to make the best choice for, for them. And then the second point is there are alternatives. So if they're not interested after they have the right information, the best alternative is likely a systemic antibiotic or in the case of a female patient, a hormonal agent plus topical treatment. So one of the places where in primary care, sometimes the patients aren't getting the best treatment is they'll get only the topical or the systemic, but the combination of both together we know does work better. And so for those patients not willing to consider isotretinoin, they can take a systemic antibiotic, which is usually a tetracycline group antibiotic, or a hormonal treatment, which is a combined oral contraceptive or potentially an antiandrogen. And those would only be options in women. You've talked a lot about the evidence underpinning the recommendations and that there are some substantial gaps in the literature around acne treatments. Could you take a minute and just outline some of the, the big areas that maybe listeners who are researchers might want to look into? Absolutely. Um, you know, one gap that's identified virtually every time a new acne patient comes into the office is energy and light-based treatments. Patients these days want a laser to fix everything. And there's certainly a lot of potential for laser and light-based treatments to help acne, but the evidence does not support its use as a first-line treatment now. So there's a lot of opportunity to improve that evidence base. And then some of the other treatments that are conspicuously unsupported or less supported by evidence are other hormonal treatments. So spironolactone is commonly prescribed for adult acne in women. And there is um, really just a low level of evidence to support that now. Isotretinoin, even, um, Accutane, has not been uh, as rigorously studied as some of the fixed-dose combination topicals. And finally, in Canada, there is um, a pattern of practice to prescribe an erythromycin tretinoin topical under the, the trade name Stevomycin. And that really has has very, very low level evidence to support its use. And that's why we haven't been able to include those with significant confidence in our guidelines. Well, thank you so much for this really practical, helpful information. Is there anything else that, that you'd like to add before we finish off? I think the last thing I would direct listeners to, particularly those with an interest in improving their patient satisfaction, improving outcomes, would be to refer to Section 3E in Appendix 3. This is just general consideration for acne. It's the guideline discussion, but it refers just to the approach, talking about a supportive and positive approach with patients. It really comes down to acknowledging their concerns, taking the time to explore them, and spending a little bit more time counseling about acne. What causes it? Why are we approaching treatment? How long do you need to try a treatment to determine if it's going to be successful? I think all of these will help improve the art of medicine and improve patient satisfaction and outcomes. Well, that's great. Thank you so much, Shannon, for uh, joining me today to talk about this important topic. You're welcome, Diane.
I've been speaking with Dr. Shannon Humphrey, medical and cosmetic dermatologist in Vancouver and director of CME in the Department of Dermatology and Skin Science and clinical assistant professor at the University of British Columbia. To read the full guideline on management of acne, visit cmaj.ca.